1: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
2: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, with just 15 days to go until midterm election day, both sides are making their closing arguments about why they deserve your vote. Campaign 22 is hitting the home stretch now. With Democrats facing economic headwinds, is President Biden a drag on some Democratic tickets? House Speaker Nancy Pelosi will be here. Plus, we'll talk with the administration's senior energy security advisor, Amos Hochstein, about those stubbornly high gas prices. Then we'll look at the surge of respiratory virus cases affecting the very young with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. And we'll get more on political misinformation and election security with tech journalist Kara Swisher and CBS News cybersecurity expert and analyst Chris Krebs. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. On this last full week in October, polls continue to show some incredibly tight races across the country. Can Democrats revive their stalled momentum and get their supporters to the polls? Or will Republicans take control of the House and possibly the Senate? President Biden has been on the campaign trail in Pennsylvania, telling reporters it ain't over till it's over, quoting Yogi Berra, of course. Senior White House and political correspondent Ed O'Keefe reports. From Pennsylvania,
3: Dr. Oz celebrated when Roe v. Wade fell.
4: <laughs>
3: to Arizona,
5: hello
4: Arizona!
3: Democratic and Republican candidates are making their final arguments. There's this attack on our democracy on the very right to vote. Republicans are sticking to a message focused on the economy and crime. This is an economic and health crisis. A doctor can help fix it. I'll keep us safe, cut your taxes, and protect our jobs.
5: You think you and your family deserve better than open borders and fentanyl and double-digit crime increases?
3: While many Democrats believe a focus on abortion
6: rights will help bring out their base. The Republican Party have been very clear that it is their agenda to have a national ban on abortion.
3: For his part, President Biden has been touting his work to curb inflation and cut gas prices. Last week, he approved the release of more oil from America's Strategic Reserve, but denied any connection to the looming election. I've been doing this for how long now? It's not politically motivated at all. Despite the president's work, many Democrats in the most competitive races don't want to be seen with him. Tim Ryan in Ohio said he doesn't want you there. Warnock said wouldn't say. Do you think they're making a mistake? No, they're by 16, or I've already gone in for you and a lot more to asked. One Democrat who is in big demand, former President Barack Obama, who's now on the airwaves for Democrats in key races.
7: You can count on John Fetterman.
8: Make sure he can count on you.
3: And plans to campaign in Georgia, Michigan, Nevada. And Wisconsin. In the coming days, attention will focus on Pennsylvania, where Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz will meet in their one and only debate. And here in Washington, there are looming fights over raising the debt limit and future funding for the war in Ukraine, as Republicans say they'll force a rethinking on those issues
2: if they take control of Congress. Margaret. Ed, thank you. And we are joined now by Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Good morning. And it's great to have you here at the table. My pleasure. Thank you. Good morning. You have said a lot is going to be determined by turnout, but you've heard our CBS estimates have the Republicans taking the House with 224 seats. How do you shift the momentum?
9: Well, let's just say, uh, first and foremost, Good morning. Uh, it's Sunday morning, uh, 15 days or so before the election. Vote. People are already voting. We're very pleased with our early vote for our owning the ground initiative. I, uh, it's interesting to me because for a year and a half, the media has been saying, "Oh, they've got it's gone. President's party always loses in the off year," and now we're down to the stretch, mm-hmm. and we're down to very close races. And we feel very confident. I've been in over 20 states since uh, Congress adjourned uh, in the last month or so, and uh, I see very clearly that the ownership of the ground is with us. It's about getting out the vote. Everything else is a conversation compared to that. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, you have to have inspiration. You can't run on empty. And the fact is, is that uh, when I hear people talk about inflation, as I heard him there, we have to change that subject. Inflation is a global phenomenon. Yes. The EU, the European Union, the UK, the British have higher... Inflation rate than we do here. It's not the fight is not about inflation. It's about the cost of living. And if you look at what we have done to bring down the cost of prescription drugs, mm-hmm. to bring down the cost of of energy and the rest in our legislation, you will see that there has been opposed every step of the way by the Republicans, and they have no plan for lowering the cost of living or helping with inflation?
2: Absolutely. Inflation is a global problem, and it's hitting a lot of countries very hard. Um, But there is also that question of fiscal spending. Uh, Congressman Jim Clyburn, who serves in leadership alongside you, said the following earlier this week.
6: All of us are concerned about
10: these rising costs, and all of us knew this would be the case uh, when we put in place this recovery program. Anytime you put more money uh, into uh, the economy, uh, prices uh, tend to rise.
2: Did you also realize at that time that the congressional spending would add to inflation? Did you see that risk then? Well, first,
9: first of all, government spending does. We had a, uh, a, a pandemic pandemic. And that brought down unemployment from 7 percent to three and a half percent now. Uh, it put people back to work, children back in school, inoculations in the arm. And it helped take us through that phase of the pandemic. But let me just say that because of pe- more people working in the rest, the national de- the deficit has been cut in half from two point eight to one point four uh, trillion dollars. That is a big change. So it is it's yes, we have to take a step forward to solve the pandemic problem. But we did so in a way that would reduce the national deficit. And that is cannot be ignored.
2: But on things like sending, you know, those fourteen hundred dollar checks, putting yeah. cash out there. Right. I mean, didn't that end up contributing to inflation? Do you have any regrets about the bills you passed and how you structured them.
9: No, absolutely not, because this—that was necessary uh, for people to survive. Our purpose it was, though,
2: is, was that it was inflationary.
9: The the. But but the point is, is that when you reduce unemployment, it's inflationary. That is a fact. When I was a new member of Congress, I was told that unemployment was dangerously low in our hearings on inflation and unemployment. Unemployment is dangerously low for what it does to inflation. But the fact is, the point is, is that this is about helping America's working families meet their needs, and that was essential to them. Uh, less inflationary than a $2 trillion tax cut for the high end that the Republicans gave. And we're still paying a price for $2 trillion, 83 percent of the benefits going to the top 1 percent. So we feel proud of what we've done. We feel proud of the Mm -hmm. president uh, to help America's working families to lower their cost and in doing so to reduce the deficit.
2: Well, on the issues that voters tell CBS News are important to them, abortion ranks number seven. Up top, economy, inflation, crime, immigration. Was it a miscalculation to believe that the momentum from striking down Roe versus Wade was going to help Democrats? Uh, Why not talk more about these issues around the economy? Well,
9: I can just say this. uh, Nobody ever the elections are about the future. They're about uh, the economy. Everybody knows that. Nobody said we're doing uh, abortion rather than economy, but it's, it's about both. And I can tell you that that issue is very, very uh, provocative and, and, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, encouraging people to vote. Across the country, yes. having just been there, not sitting in Washington, but walk going around the country. But I would say this:
2: twenty four percent of likely voters, according to our polling, uh, are motivated by this issue and that's about a, that's Roe. That's a good number.
9: But you need them to win, right? That's right. They need me, to show yeah, up. Let me say this: here's what it happened. Let's just talk about what this comes down to in these races, and why I'm. Optimistic about it. I mean, it's a fight. These are close races. It's like the Olympics. In a half a second, you could be gold, silver, bronze, or honor to be an Olympian. So these are tough fights, uh, but that's what they are. And it's a big change from what the media was media threat of. Oh, they can't possibly win. No, we can possibly win. But here's the thing: in these districts, the district, the Republicans have said that if they win, they want to subject Medicare, Social Security. Uh, held blackmail to lifting the debt ceiling. Uh, They have said they would like to review uh, Medicare and Social Security every five years. They have said that they would like to make it a a discretionary spending, that Congress could decide to do it or not, rather Mm -hmm. than mandatory. So Social Security and Medicare are on the line. A woman's right to choose is on the line. The planet is on the line. Issues that relate to uh, prescription drugs. For years, we've been trying to get the— the secretary to negotiate for lower prices, we couldn't get it done until we had the Democratic president and a, a, a strong majority, and enough in the Congress uh, okay. to get it done.
2: I, I want to ask you about that, the future and the new yes. Congress potentially. Um, you told Andrea Mitchell earlier this week, we need generational change, but in some cases there's no substitute for experience. Right. Will you remain in leadership in the new Congress? I'm not
9: talking about that. I'm here to talk about how we win the election. But to deliver on uh, all I, I these was only things. Paying, I was only paying Andrea a compliment for all the experience that she has. I see. The, but the fact is we so, need to— So
2: you may or you may not.
9: I'm not here to talk about me. I'm here to talk about the future, America's working families, for the children. It's always about the children. Mm-hmm. And the point is this, that the— mm-hmm. um, These issues, if you're a senior, you have a lot at risk. Yes. If you're a childbearing age woman, you have a lot at risk if your family does. If you care, if you care about the planet, you have a lot at risk. They said it's a hoax. When we had the debate on our funding for uh, uh, addressing the climate crisis, not one Republican vote. Okay. We talked about, so what we need to go forward with is more you know, that we had in our agenda and child care, child okay. tax credit, uh, issues like that.
2: Madam Speaker, I appreciate you coming here today. We did also invite the Republican House leader to join us. He declined the invitation. We'll be right back.
7: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
2: And we turn now to former FDA commissioner, Pfizer board member, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Dr. Gottlieb, it is great to see you, Um, but I have other (laughs) tough issues to ask you about, including the surge in respiratory infections among children in 33 states now. We're seeing some pediatric units overwhelmed. Why is this happening and why is it having such a powerful impact?
5: Well, look, we're seeing a surge right now in respiratory syncytial virus. This is a virus that we typically see in the late winter. We started to see cases in the summertime, and we're seeing a a peak in cases right now. This is not unlike the season last year, where we also saw an early peak in those cases. Some people ascribe it to the fact that children have been somewhat removed from these circulating pathogens, so you don't have as much immunity in the population generally. So it's changed the typical cycle for this virus, and we're seeing these waves of infection from RSV earlier in the season than we would normally see. For most people, this is a self-limiting infection. It's an upper respiratory infection. It causes cold-like symptoms. But for children under the age of two, it can be a serious infection. And it's especially concerning for those who are immunocompromised, children who are immunocompromised or those in a neonatal intensive care unit, as well as older adults, elderly Americans or people who have other kinds of conditions that put them at risk.
2: So this is happening. You have flu season coming and we have covid ticking up. Um, The White House says everyone needs to go out and get their covid booster by Halloween. Do you agree with that timeline and how do you protect yourself against all of these respiratory risks?
5: Well, look, I think now is a prudent time to not just get the COVID uh, boost or the new bivalent vaccine, but also the flu vaccine. Right now, we have flu cases picking up. It looks like this may be uh, a more aggressive flu season. The predominant strain right now is H3N2, and the vaccine appears to be a good match for the strain. So the vaccine, based on what we see right now, uh, based on the genetic sequence of the strain that's circulating and, and the antigen that's in the vaccine, suggest that the vaccine is going to be quite protective this season, so it's a good time to get it. I think in terms of just protecting yourselves, it's just the normal things that we advise people to do. Wash your hands, try to avoid crowded spaces if you are someone who's at risk. If you don't feel well, stay home. Don't send a child to school if they're not feeling well, so you don't expose others to an infection. So all the things that we've learned to do to just good. Well, look, I think if you're someone who's at risk or someone who wants to take extra precaution, one-way masking we know does work if you're going to wear a high-quality mask. I, I don't think people are going to be generally wearing them right now. Um, but I think for people who are at risk who want extra an extra measure of protection, that's another step yeah. that can help afford in that. The one thing, the final thing I'll say is that, you know, for parents who have children who have an upper respiratory infection, many times they're testing them, finding out it's not COVID and feeling relieved. I think they still need to be vigilant that it could be RSV, it could be early flu. So if you see progressive symptoms, seek out help from a doctor. There are treatments that are available that could help children with RSV.
2: Noted. Um, it is election season, and I wanna ask you about a false claim about COVID vaccines that really hit the campaign trail, and it's been in conservative circles in particular. Under U.S. law, just to be clear, the CDC does not mandate vaccines, as we've talked about here before. Um, the state governors have the authority to do that. Can you explain what the CDC advisors actually did last week?
5: Yeah, well, this week they took the recommendation that already existed for children to get vaccinated with the COVID vaccine, which was their general recommendation they issued last year. And they incorporated it into their formal recommendations, which are their permanent recommendations. Some people refer to it as their vaccine schedule. That doesn't translate into state mandates. There are a lot of vaccines in that schedule. For example, the flu vaccine is in that schedule. They recommend that for children. No states mandate that. The HPV vaccine is in the schedule. Only two states mandate the HPV vaccine for children to attend school, Virginia and Rhode Island. Even the dengue fever vaccine is in the schedule. And obviously, no states mandate the use of that. So what got started on Twitter initially was that the uh, CDC recommendations automatically translate into state mandates, which is not true. Um, one of the reasons why the CDC went ahead and made this formal recommendation is that it also allows the vaccines to be incorporated into the Vaccines for Children's program, which provides federal funding for indigent kids to get access to vaccines. And so that's part of the impetus. But mm-hmm. there will be no state mandates. Quite frankly, I don't think there should be state mandates. I don't think we're at the point right now we should be considering mandating this vaccine as a condition to attend school. While I think every child should seek out this vaccine, parents should strongly consider vaccinating their kids. I don't think it should be mandated by states. And I wouldn't expect to see any state mandating this vaccine.
2: Thank you for your clarity on that, because the misinformation you just said started on Twitter. Tucker Carlson amplified it. But as we just showed our viewers, you see a number of candidates and sitting governors spreading this. You have Presidential candidate, potentially Mike Pompeo. You have the governor of Virginia, the governor of Utah, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, the GOP candidate for governor of Arizona, Carrie Lake. They're all putting out tweets with this false idea. So there is clearly a political force in an anti-vaccine sentiment.
5: Well, look, I think from a public health standpoint, the more that this becomes a political matter and the more people make this a political matter, the campaign against mandates bleeds into a campaign against the vaccine itself. And people generally don't take away the nuance of those messages. If there is any nuance in those messages in the first place, they hear the skepticism against the vaccine. And then they're less likely to consider it for themselves, even where it makes sense from a clinical standpoint. I didn't see a lot of people stepping up and saying, look, my state won't mandate the vaccine. We believe these are decisions that should be left to pediatricians and parents, but I would strongly encourage parents to make sure that their children are up to date with all the available vaccines, especially in advance of this, you know, flu and COVID season. That would have been an appropriate yeah. message, in my view, for a governor to say, who wanted to say, look, we're not going to mandate it, but we still right. think it's important. I the, the closest I saw anyone coming to that was Spencer Cox in Utah.
2: Yeah. And, and to be clear, the CDC um, wasn't as clear as they could have been either. So that's why we wanted you that's to right. help. Translate that for our viewers today, Dr. Gottlieb. I have to leave it there. So good to see you again. We turn now to threats to election security and efforts to combat false information online. We're joined by CBS News cybersecurity expert and analyst Chris Krebs and Kara Swisher, tech journalist and host of the podcast podcast. On with Kara Swisher and Pivot. Good to have you both here. Thanks for having us. We, we were just talking about this with Dr. Gottlieb. Um, but on the election front, and Kara, I want to start with you. There have been these recent studies talking about Facebook, TikTok, approving even ads with political misinformation mm-hmm. on them. How does this continue to happen with vaccines and with political misinformation? Why can't these platforms get control?
4: Because they don't want to make those decisions, they want to opt themselves out of decision making on editorial. And you heard Nick Clegg, who's running is number two at Facebook right now, essentially just gave an interview where he talked about that. We shouldn't be the arbiters of this. We shouldn't do this. Um, it should be government. But then, then we have the First Amendment, so government can't intercede. So I think they don't. There's just so much of it, and it floods the zone so much, and they make money from it um, that they don't want They don't want the responsibility for it even though it's on their platforms, and they should have the responsibility.
2: And some of it sort of dances or flirts with distortions. And so you have to be in that government business of spotting this. But, Chris, how do you even do that?
11: Well, it's it's a challenge as Kara points out with the First Amendment issues. Uh, you know, DHS launched their disinformation governance board uh, earlier in the year, and that was not actually met uh, with with any kind of fanfare, and they they ultimately stood it back down, even though efforts they were taking through that uh, group were or have been underway for a decade or more within DHS. So one of the things that we looked at back in the 2020 election was not so much. The specific claims or the specific elements of mis- or disinformation, but it was more the thematics that were emerging. So not pinning it to a single individual, instead looking at, hey, these are some of the claims we were seeing, and here are the security controls or prevention in place that would actually not allow that to happen in an election. And we're seeing some continuation of that. But once again, you know, there is so much of it, mm-hmm. and you know, once it hits, it's really hard to go bit by bit. And pull it back.
2: I want to show our viewers some of the video that um, our CBS affiliate out in Arizona uh, filmed multiple incidents of possible voter intimidation. They had armed individuals wearing tactical gear, as you can see there, camped out by a voter drop box. There were other two with handguns that were concealed yesterday. So some of this is driven towards a very specific conspiracy that emerged. Right. So, Chris, how, how does the FBI head this off and not allow it to go into political violence?
11: Well, the, I think the important thing here is that if any voter or election official sees these sort of things happening in Arizona, Arizona, they, they, they make a report, they, they tell the, uh, you know, the relevant officials, and they can investigate and they can look at these people, they can investigate and sure, And then, you know, there's a deterrent. takes the guy with the tactical
2: gear before that happens? Well, and, and that's
11: mean- the biggest challenge here, as I see it, is that the continued efforts to delegitimize the 2020 election are resulting in candidates that are incentivized to push these lies. But also then you have a radicalization and activation across the voter base that are effectively, this is performative. The, these, the, this doesn't happen. You know, the claims of, of mules and ballot trafficking, it doesn't happen, particularly in a way that someone like this would, would be able to detect anything. Moreover, what's happening is the people that are being accused of ballot trafficking or, or being a mule actually report it to the officials and say, here's my name. Here's my contact information. I was accused of this. Would any legitimate fraudster or mule Do that and then report on themselves? Of course not. Mm -hmm. So it's all performative, and unfortunately, I am
4: concerned that it results in violence. Chaos is the point. Chaos and discord. It's actually from the Russian playbook. Chaos is what they want. Discord, problems, um, making people radicalize, radicalizing people, and it's not. It's in the mainstream. Before it was sort of it bubbles up from the bottom, but now it's pushed down from the top. And so, just last night, you saw Trump say a number of things that were. Right. Radicalizing—I don't know what else to say it—and um, so that goes down, and then it goes back up, and and it's it's hit the mainstream now. They don't even need these these ads or anything else because it's now infected some of the public so much. And so this is where people get their news—a lot of news. And before yeah. this, we had sort of information obesity; not enough people got good news. Now they get a lot of information, but not actual facts.
2: We're going to take a quick break and come back. Talk more about this in a moment. Stay with us. <laughs>
12: Welcome back to Face the Nation. We continue
2: our conversation now with Chris Krebs and Kara Swisher. Kara, I want to pick up with you. Uh, We've been talking about social media. Twitter may find a new buyer, billionaire Elon Musk. Friday. On Friday's a day, I believe. Supposedly. Senator Mark Warner, who chairs the Intel Committee, has said that there is no American more dependent upon the largesse of the Communist Party than Elon Musk. He's the CEO of Tesla, SpaceX, the rocket ships. Bloomberg's saying that the administration is going to have to do national security reviews, potentially, of businesses he owns. Sure. So, how much of a risk is it if this transaction goes, transaction goes through?
4: It depends on what they find, I guess. You know, I mean, I think the issue is is he he already does a lot of defense work, a lot with the rockets and everything else, and it's considered very innovative and has done amazing things. The International Space Station is is. Depends on Elon Musk and his rockets, um, and so he does a lot of, you know, obviously with transportation. That's another area that's important to look at and who owns it. And Twitter also, um, who this is a big communications platform, even though it's a terrible business. Uh, so who owns it matters, and so who are his investors, who is putting money into it, um, et cetera, et cetera, should be looked at. It's as a matter of course.
2: But yeah, I mean, it's almost kind of amazing, Chris, that that there isn't more scrutiny. I mean, there is FCC scrutiny of ownership of news organizations. When it comes to social media and a company like TikTok, it's owned by a Chinese firm. An increasing number of Americans are relying on it for actual news, not just tweeting about themselves, but actual news. Is this a risk?
11: Well, I I think just to to your point, as more people use these platforms, as they get more information, as they're shifting away from traditional media that we're all used to, The intelligence services of our adversary are seeing the shift as well. And so it's not necessarily specifically about TikTok. It's all platforms and it's all avenues. But TikTok uh, represents uh, a specific risk. And and a a colleague of mine wrote a paper, Dakota Carey, wrote a paper for CyberScoop talking about how it's not necessarily the data security challenges. It's that the Chinese Communist Party may have the ability through the parent company of TikTok to actually shape narratives, suppress, lift shape what we see on a daily basis and it doesn't have to be everything you see all the time Mm -hmm. it can just be enough it can just be enough a little bit and and i think about what happens if uh if the the chinese invade taiwan what happens in the run-up to the 24 election if if they're not happy with some of the more uh you know the stronger stance that this administration is taking in china There are a significant amount of risk exposure we have here. And
4: then who who owns Twitter? Who who are his investors? I think that's a normal question for a government to ask. You know, the CCP doesn't own CBS, to my
2: knowledge. So (laughs) the Chinese Communist Party. No. (laughs) Um, But for Elon Musk, I know you know him. And and last question here on this. um, Russia watcher Fiona Hill said Putin plays the egos of big men, gives them a sense that they can play a role. But in reality, they're just direct transmitters of messages from Vladimir Putin. She just gutted Elon Musk when he was pushing pro-Russia positions. I mean, is it really that? I mean, are our adversaries using business icons to further their foreign policy?
4: Why, yes, that's happened before. I don't know if you've heard about President Donald Trump. I mean, people have talked about that. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think I think Elon's doing this on his own. Um, But he's uh, you know, he's he's a lot of people in Silicon Valley are also mouthing the same thing. There's sort of a certain class of tech bros that are are into this idea. But you still Um, think
2: this transition?
6: Well, they have no
4: foreign policy experience so they have no business doing this, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't stop them, which is. About everything, they are experts on everything. Case because they're the richest people in the world. Case you didn't know. So <laughs> I
2: think it's we, slightly
4: dangerous. I don't know, Chris. Add, a little bit.
2: We could keep talking about this. I want to yes. keep talking about this, but I have to take a break here and, and bring great. some important information um, to you from voters themselves. Actually, uh, we wanted to better understand how Americans could impact the vote in the year's elections, and our CBS News Campaign 2020. I-22, sorry, it's moving quickly, I in America is tracking four groups of what we are calling election influencers. And on Friday, we spoke to some pressured parents. These are voters who describe themselves as feeling post-pandemic stress over finances and kids.
6: I feel like Biden is doing a pretty good job, but um, my concern is like the crime. I want to know who is you know, what exactly will they do about this because it's, it's out of control in Chicago.
13: What about in Arkansas and Texas? I live more in the suburbs, so it's not um, as prevalent in my neighborhood, um, but it's still something that's um, concerning.
8: Uh, Not so much. Uh, Greg Abbott, our governor, does a a great job. And the only thing, you know, that we've been having trouble with is, you know, the, the border.
2: So immigration is a concern for you in these upcoming elections? Here, we just
8: left a pandemic When you have thousands upon thousands every day crossing over, they don't have to get tested. You know, we don't know what they're bringing in.
2: Well, some of those pandemic era restrictions are still in place along the border. What do you need to see that would change your impression of immigration in this country?
8: I I really like how DeSantis and Abbott have been taking them and, and shipping them out to Bluer states, so they can recognize the problems that we've been having in in Texas and in Arizona. You know, uh, we Greg Abbott needs to have a lot more control over the border itself.
2: But you will still vote Republican. Yes, I, this upcoming- I, I will
8: still support uh, Greg Abbott because uh, his running he's running up against uh, Beto, Beto, and. You know, he, he he's all about the open border.
2: Show of hands. Will all of you accept the election results from these midterm races in 2022? Yes. All of you trust the elections that and the systems to run them. How would all of you describe the current state of the U.S. economy? Oh, I would say scary.
6: Scary. Yes. LaShawn, how would you describe it? I would say it's unstable because um, it's just so much going on. John, in one
2: in one word, how would you describe the U.S. economy? Horrible. Horrible.
8: In regards with inflation, uh,
2: I, I watched last week uh, a bag
8: of six-ounce broccoli go from $1.99 to this week being $2.49.
2: Can I see a show of hands? Is anyone driving less because of the cost of gasoline? So you're still filling up your gas tank and still driving despite prices climbing higher?
8: Just to go to work. I got I, I drive 11 hours to go to wow. work. I, I live in East Texas, work in New Mexico. So uh, it, I have to buy it regardless.
6: Have high prices changed the way you live your life? I still have to do whatever I need to do to get around, but um, I don't know, what can you do? You have to just adjust. It's not just the you know heating, the cost of living, the electricity. Everything is just it's just really high. So, John and Stephanie, have you had to make changes in your life because of inflation?
2: Yes. What ma'am. have you done?
13: Um, we have cut back on our um, going out to eat. Kind of eliminated Amazon Prime, Netflix, um, limiting that kind of stuff. I've looked for ways to budget better with groceries.
2: Do you think that President Biden has control or greater influence over the economy?
13: Um, I think it's just as much Congress and um, also state and local as it is Biden. I don't think it's just one person.
2: What are your biggest concerns about raising children in America right now, John?
8: The whole woke culture affecting our children. All these elementary schools and middle schools having woke culture pushed on them from the LGBT plus community for sexual identity and, and, and gender. We should be pushing the actual school studies, math, social studies, science, not, you know, gender studies or sexual identifications.
2: What have you seen that makes you concerned?
8: In, in the district I, I, that I uh, live in, There hasn't been really anything going on, but I'm originally from Iowa, and just recently there was some protest at an Iowa school for bringing in a transgender art, uh, art show.
2: So you're not concerned about your kids in Texas? You're seeing this on the news? That's what's raising your concern? Yes.
6: LaShawn, I'd like to get you to weigh in on this. I can also agree with some of his points. Um, I really would say sex education. I feel like um, some things, you know, are brought to the children's attention they wouldn't even think about. And you have eight
2: kids. I imagine you have some pretty specific
6: ideas in your mind when you're speaking
14: about this. Yes. Mm
6: -hmm. The children are, Yeah, they're really influenced. You can teach them one thing at home, but when they go to school, they're just as much influenced by their teachers and their surroundings, and we should have more input to parents of what we w- want them to learn.
2: Stephanie, what, what's your biggest concern? And if you want to react to any of that, go ahead.
13: Um, I, I agree. The other issue uh, has to do with COVID. Um, there's less teachers in the school district. Um, and because of that, they have... Um, Student choice school days, so the students can choose whether or not they want to go to school that day because there's not enough teachers or bus drivers to mm. get them there, and so I worry about their education. When you said your top issue was crime, what did you have in mind?
6: Robberies and you know murders, you know stabbings, and it's like it, every time you turn on the news, somebody killed their baby and. It, you know, they're losing their mind. It's like people are everywhere doing everything. And it's, not, it's like they're out of control. Nobody's stopping them. John
2: talked about how concerned he was about the border in his state
6: of Texas and
2: migrants coming into the country.
6: I mean, it's nothing wrong with helping, but there we have more problems here in our country. I feel like there's so, so much focus on helping immigrants and it's not enough focus on the people here that might need assistance
2: do you blame your mayor and your governor for that or
6: do you blame washington for that it's everybody everyone washington um the mayor i mean you know it's like they they help who they want certain people certain groups of people they'll help them and then they neglect someone else
2: Often when we do these focus groups, we have people of, from different party affiliations disagreeing with each other. But I'm hearing all of you echo a lot of the same concerns and agreeing with each other. None of you are very optimistic about the country right now.
13: Yeah.
2: No. For a closer look on that additional release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and its impact on prices. We're joined by Amos Hochstein, the Special Presidential Coordinator for International Energy Affairs. Good morning. Good to have you back here. Um, President Biden has released more oil from the SPR than all previous presidents combined. Republicans are saying this is depleting the stockpile into national security risk. When you were last here, you said that this would end towards the end of the year. Did you know then that three weeks before the election, there was going to be a release?
10: Well, First, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me again. President, before I came here last time, the president was in the middle already of releasing 180 million barrels. This is still part of that 180 million barrels. So the announcement that was made the other day is because it takes some time to, to get those barrels released, and these barrels will be released in December. The president's been committed to bringing down gasoline prices. When, you mentioned when I was here last. We talked about then prices were coming down from $5, and we were about $4.50 dollars 50 Today they're at three dollars and eighty cents or three dollars seventy-nine cents, and in fact most Americans see prices around three forty to three fifty. So, he's been committed to bringing those prices down, and this release is just part of that process. And he says he may do more.
2: But when we last spoke, you said private industry was expected to pick it up, and so that you wouldn't have to keep doing these emergency releases. Why isn't that working?
10: Well, I think it is working. The private industry is increasing supply so why and production. have to do more releases? Well, what the president said is that we are going to be very watchful to see what happens around the world. There are a lot of uh, uh, geopolitical events, the Russian invasion. I don't know what Putin's going to do in December or in January. So we have to be ready for that. So what the president said is we're going to complete the 180 that, we've, that he has announced many months ago, as he's been doing monthly. Uh, that will continue on into December. And then as we are, we are making sure that we are prepared, so if we need to do additional releases, we can do them very, very quickly.
2: Um, there's going to be a European ban on Russian crude imports on December 5th. That's going to have an impact globally. How much of a shock is that going to have on energy prices ahead of the holidays?
10: Well, I think that's exactly what we're talking about, right? So the president made this release, uh, announced this release that will happen in December, around the time that the ban comes in. We're also working with uh, Europe and other G7 partners around the world, countries in Asia, uh, to see if we can make sure that we continue to have the Russian barrels on the market, but ensure that the price that and the revenues that Russia gets continue to be
2: depressed. This is the price cap you're trying this to is the price roll cap up still. Correct. Um, so that price cap, though, and the negotiations around this has raised speculation that that was one of the factors in Saudi Arabia's decision to pull two million barrels a day off the, off the market. And the president has said he's furious that he's going to retaliate against Saudi Arabia. Is that what happened here?
10: Well, look, I, clearly the president said it better than I can that he was extremely disappointed in the OPEC decision uh, and that he thought it was a mistake. And clearly nobody can argue that it was warranted for any economic reason.
2: Well, that's what uh, to OPEC says.
10: Uh, I understand, but nobody else thinks that it was warranted. And even OPEC, when they announce a two million, and then they say, well, we're not actually going to cut two million we're just going to cut 900. And then you look a little deeper, and it's really just about 500. So the impact on the market is not going to be as significant. Uh, so this was more of a big political statement uh, that OPEC has, has made. Uh, and we're, How look, so? Look, at the end of the day, the president was disappointed in what OPEC did. But his commitment is to do things here in the United States, mm-hmm. where, we can, where we can have an impact on the American economy, uh, bringing down prices as they have. And look, think about it this way. When I was here last... In June, we were at $120 a barrel of oil and $5 of gasoline. Today, we're at $85.
2: And Bank of America said said today they expect an average of $100 a barrel next year. That just came out this morning.
10: Yes, but look at, but the, in June, Goldman Sachs expected the last quarter of this year to be 140, uh, prices to rise to 140. So the banks keep saying that the price is going to go up. The president keeps taking decisive action here that has led but to these 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 are short term fixes.
2: That the these are not
10: short term fixes, Margaret. These are, we've been in this now for eight, nine months. This is almost a year now of higher prices, and the president has taken these actions. So I don't think these are, are short term. I understand that the banks make their own uh, analysis, but they've, they haven't been accurate all the time. And the, what is really what you can measure is that we're down 30 percent on oil prices and we're down over $1.20. Uh, in, uh, in the United States on gasoline. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we're now almost every single week for the last several months, we've seen a decline in gasoline price in the United States. And so we're working with allies. We're trying to strengthen the American economy yeah. while also making sure that our allies' economies are strong as well.
2: Before I let you go real quick, are you going to be able to close this deal between Israel and Lebanon that would allow for drilling off their coast?
10: Well, I think that this is a, a really great development, a historic agreement between two enemy countries. Uh, Lebanon doesn't even recognize the state of Israel. We're going to have a deal. We're going to sign it, hopefully, this Thursday. Uh, and I hope that this continues to um, commitment, our commitment to stability uh, in the region and prosperity for both countries.
2: Amos, good to have you here. Hope to have you back again soon. We'll be back in a moment.
12: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back We turn now to the war in Ukraine.
2: First up, our Holly Williams reports from Kyiv.
15: In the Russian-occupied city of Kherson in southern Ukraine, the authorities installed by Moscow have now ordered all residents to leave ahead of an expected Ukrainian counteroffensive. Kherson was seized by the Russians in the early days of the invasion. Now Ukraine claims that Russia's planning to blow up a hydroelectric dam in the region to slow the Ukrainian military's advance and has already laid mines risking a catastrophic flood. Herman Halyshenko is Ukraine's energy minister and told us if the Russians destroy the dam, it could even leave a nuclear power plant without water for cooling. So if the Russians blow the dam, one potential consequence is a nuclear accident.
14: It could be. It's good
15: As Russian forces struggle to hold onto territory they've seized, they've launched a new wave of attacks on Ukraine's cities, including with so-called kamikaze drones. The US says Iran is supplying drones and even has troops on the ground helping the Russians operate them. Ukraine says the main target with over 300 strikes is energy facilities, As a harsh winter looms, there have already been blackouts in some parts of the country. What's the worst case scenario here? Could Ukrainians end up this winter with no heating and no electricity?
9: Uh, I think not, but
3: uh, frankly speaking, it also will depend on how intensive uh, these attacks
15: would be in the future. Ukraine says what it's still asking for is more air defence systems from its friends in the west. Ukraine says that Russian strikes on Saturday cut off power to more than 1.4 million households. Margaret.
2: Holly, thank you. There are currently 100,000 U.S. troops supporting NATO allies in European countries that surround Ukraine. Our Charlie Daggett spent time with some in Constancia, Romania.
0: The screaming eagles have landed. The 101st Airborne Division deployed on the very edge of NATO territory.
3: Go, 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 go!
0: With Colonel Edwin Mathedis and Brigadier General John Lubas, we board Black Hawk helicopters and head toward the border with Ukraine. Specifically trained to hit the ground fighting, when the call came, the colonel said his soldiers were ready.
5: And You know, you can see it on their face that... That all that stuff we had talked about, about being ready, about training hard, you know, not leaving anything on the table, you know, they had a chance to put it into use, and they're, they're doing that same stuff here today. Right. It just got real. It did.
0: We traversed the Black Sea coast across the water from Russian-held territory in Ukraine and Crimea until we reached the forward operating site, where soon U.S. and Romanian NATO forces were conducting a joint air and ground assault. Live fire tank and artillery rounds took aim at targets, simulating the battlefields of Ukraine. This isn't a routine military exercise against a hypothetical enemy. This is a real-life combat scenario against a very real enemy, one that's not so
10: far away. We're about 250 miles from the front line of Russian troops, Uh, And the way we are dispersed right now, we are ready to transition from our current locations where we're currently at to combat operations um, on order. It's the
0: first time the 101st has been headquartered in Europe since the D-Day landings, seen here with then-General Dwight Eisenhower, prepared to defend European allies again, if called upon, to fight. Now, almost 80 years later, the 101st is back go 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 making a mark in history once more those military exercises come at a time when broader nato nuclear exercises are underway now entering the second week they involve 60 aircraft from 14 countries including usb-52 bombers they were scheduled long
2: before the war in ukraine began margaret charlie dagata thank you we'll be right back that's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, CBS News cybersecurity expert and analyst Chris Krebs, tech journalist Kara Swisher and Amos Hochstein, Special Presidential Coordinator for International Energy Affairs. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+.
14: and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.
10: The Hargan women seem to have it all.
14: From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing.
10: But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household.
14: Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Mm -hmm. No one's answering.
10: I'm Peter Van sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker The Hargan Family Killings wherever you get your
9: podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast